And now we're going to do our scripture reading, and it's going to be from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, and 46 through 50. And this is found on page 817 and 818 in your pew Bible. Also, as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, please, by all means, take one home. Um, we'd love for you to have it as a gift from us. All right, Matthew 12, 22 through 32, 46 through 50. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man could speak and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my, my sister and my brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Carrie Lynn, uh, for the announcements and reading God's word for us. Uh, welcome. My name is Paul Brandis, and uh, I serve here as the associate pastor, one of the associate pastors at the Brookside campus of Christ Community. Uh, I'm so glad you're here with us, whether you've been with us from the beginning or whether it's one of your first times. Uh, if you are new to the church, uh, thank you. We know how tough it can be uh, to walk into the doors of a new church, and so we're grateful that you did that this morning. Uh, as we open God's Word together, we need His help. Uh, I feel that uh, this morning, and so I'd like to invite you to bow your heads with me as I pray for God to open our hearts and minds so we can hear him speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may hear your word with joy and respond to it. Amen. I think that Jesus is the most polarizing person to ever live. And we've been studying the book of Matthew for a couple months now, and I really believe that this truth of Jesus being polarizing absolutely leaps off of the page. It seems that with Jesus, you either love him or hate him. You either want to murder him or you want to follow him. And the thing is, I don't think that this truth is just relegated to the pages of Scripture either. I think that Jesus cuts one way or the other, whether we're talking about first century Palestine or 21st century Kansas City. Today, Jesus still has the ability to make people feel a bit 
well, uncomfortable. Maybe you've noticed this in our culture, that Jesus can make people feel uncomfortable. I don't think anyone has uh, described this phenomenon better than uh, the great theologian Jim Gaffigan. Let's take a watch of this clip here. I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. <laughs> he, he better not. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're religious or not. Does anything make you feel more uncomfortable than some stranger going, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus? <laughs> yeah, I'd like you not to. <laughs> you could say that to the Pope. I want to talk to you about Jesus. You'd be like, easy, freak. <laughs> I keep work at work. I have to admit, that was a good impression of the Pope. <laughs> I love it. Even the Pope, if you asked to talk to him about Jesus, would say, easy, buddy, I keep work at work. And now I hope you don't take this clip to be us slamming on talking to people about Jesus. Hear me clearly. We do think it's important to talk to people about Jesus. Uh, no, I show this clip, and we may have actually used it once before. I show it because I think it's such an accurate assessment of something that I've observed in our culture today. Uh, maybe you've noticed it too. It seems like you can ask other people, even strangers, about almost anything else. Politics, sex, foreign policy, parenting, marriage. But you want to talk to me about Jesus? About religion? Easy, buddy. Right? You know, people don't often want to publicly reveal how they've responded to Jesus. But that's not what happens in our passage this morning. Matthew 12 shows two very clear and very different responses to Jesus. They're right there in the text. And I think we can summarize the responses and I think we can summarize the passage this way. And I'll warn you right now, you may not like what's coming, but, but here it goes. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. Now here's probably why you don't like that statement. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we're so glad to have you, but I'm willing to bet that Jesus being the devil isn't even on your list of the reasons why you're not a Christian, much less at the top. I mean, he's the devil, that just sounds so extreme, doesn't it? And if you're here and you are a Christian, the Jesus is your brother part, well, it sounds kind of disrespectful. Jesus is supposed to be the Lord of my life, isn't he? My brother? Or maybe for Christians today, it just doesn't feel like the relationship that you have with Jesus. Aren't brothers close? Don't they have an intimate relationship? I'm not sure that I have that with Jesus. So, so coming from either direction this morning, again, I'm willing to bet you don't love that statement. But it is such a clear summary of our passage this morning. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. And now I've, I'm sure you've already noticed Matthew 12, 22 through 50. It's a lot of verses and there's some really difficult things in them. There are challenges all over this passage and we're, we're not going to be able to in the next uh, handful of minutes here solve all of them. So bear with me. I have just two simple points to frame our time together. Number one, how to make Jesus the devil. How to make Jesus the devil. And number two, how to receive Jesus as your brother how to receive Jesus 
as your brother. So first, where in the passage do we see how to make Jesus the devil? Well, look back with me right at the beginning, and let me read verse 22 for us again. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Verse 22. So some of you hear that verse and you just immediately tune out. Demons? Really? This can't possibly be true. The man must have just been suffering from some ailment that they didn't know the name for yet. And can I tell you something? I totally understand where you're coming from. Your stories like this, casting out demons, it kind of feels like the weirdest chapter of Harry Potter, right? (laughs) Entertaining maybe, but ultimately untrue and, and doesn't affect my life in any way. You see, culturally, we're all just materialists at heart. We only believe in what we can see and feel and touch. We, we may believe in God because we can kind of keep him over here at a distance, but everything else, again, just feels like it's not really there or we can't be impacted from it. But that thought leads me to this question. Because there's been a shift there. How did we move from a world that was so dominated by belief to an age when belief is difficult, fragile, and unstable? And I'm not even talking about what you believe necessarily. Just that today, believing and having faith in anything is difficult. In our culture, it seems as if the world has flattened a bit, if you will. However, almost every other culture, including most places around the world today, have a category for the non-physical realm. And while we certainly don't want to exaggerate it, we don't want to begin seeing demons or angels behind every tree or bush, we can't write it off either. We can't write off the non-physical realm. And here's just a couple quick reasons why. First, Jesus, the most brilliant man who ever lived, clearly believed in a world that was bigger than what we can see. Second, if you believe in God, and most people around the world today do believe in God, then that means that you already believe in a spiritual realm. So then it follows that it's not that big of a leap to also believe in angels and demons. And finally, and and this one is just purely existential, but doesn't it sometimes just feel like there's something against us Something that's trying to destroy us more than just the occasional bad luck? Robert Jensen, theologian and author, writes this, The existence of a tempter is an ongoing conviction not just of Christianity, but also of Judaism. And this reflects more than anything else a common experience. There does seem to be somebody out there laughing at us. I was very skeptical about the existence of Satan until I made that observation. The disasters that happen could just be disasters, but we seem to be mocked by them. Listen, I know that this doesn't resolve all the tension we feel around this incredible story and the other ones that we see in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons and and interacting with the non-spiritual realm. I know it doesn't solve all that tension. But what's interesting from our passage today is that the healing of the demon-oppressed man is really kind of more of a footnote If you look back at the passage, it gets mentioned in the first verse, but what's in center view is what happens after Jesus heals the demon-oppressed man. 
There's a controversy and a confrontation that goes on between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that's what's in center view. And we see in verse 23 that the crowds wonder if Jesus is the son of David. Is this the king we've been waiting for? They're excited, anxious. Could it be? Not so fast, say the Pharisees. These guys again. Religious leaders who hate Jesus and his mission. You know, Jesus, in the course of his teaching, claims to be greater than the temple, greater than the law, greater than King David. Jesus claims to be the only way to God, the only way to life and righteousness. And the Pharisees, it's not that they've been ignoring Jesus or haven't been listening. They're tuning in. They just don't like what they hear. And notice something else interesting with me about the Pharisees in this passage. Verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had healed the demon-oppressed man, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. I find it fascinating that the, de- that the Pharisees don't question whether or not the miracle happened. They don't try to cast doubt on it because quite plainly it did happen. Jesus did heal the demon-oppressed man. Instead, the Pharisees go in an entirely different direction. What we see time and time again from the Pharisees is not that they don't believe in Jesus' power or the fact that he is clearly special. It's just that they don't want anything to do with him. He is simply too much of a disruption to their way of life. So they don't deny his power or uniqueness. Instead, they try to write him off as an agent of the devil. He gets his power from Satan, they yell at the top of their lungs. And this leads us to the first of three ways in the passage people make Jesus the devil. What we see here from the Pharisees is outright rejection. Outright rejection. The Pharisees make Jesus the devil by, well, calling him the devil. (laughs) They can't deny the reality of his power and his authority, so they try to shift the conversation. Oh, sure, he's casting out demons, but he's only doing it by the power of the prince of demons. But the problem is that their claim doesn't make any sense at all. And in verses 25 through 29, Jesus points out how ridiculous this argument is. Why would the devil cast out the devil? Why would the prince of darkness bring light? Why would the destroyer bring healing? What they're trying to say about Jesus is completely and totally illogical. But even more than being illogical... Jesus calls what the Pharisees are doing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 31, Jesus says that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. The only unforgivable sin. That's clearly very serious. The only unforgivable sin is such an outright rejection of Jesus that the Pharisees would rather believe terrible, horrible, evil things about him than submit to him. The Pharisees would rather give credit to the devil for what he's doing than to the Holy Spirit. And it's important to say that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't the utterance of a particular set of words. There isn't an unforgivable sentence or an unforgivable thought. No, what Jesus is talking about here is the whole of one's life set in a posture of outright rejection. Author and theologian Leon Morris says this about the unforgivable sin. 
It is not that God refuses to forgive. It is that the person who sees good as evil and evil as good is quite unable to repent and thus come humbly to God for forgiveness. And there is no way to forgiveness other than by the path of repentance and faith. You know, we see this posture from the Pharisees in the passage, don't we? It's not that what they're doing can't be forgiven. It's that as the Pharisees make clear in this story and in other stories across the gospel, they make clear that Jesus' forgiveness is the last thing that they want. They don't want it. They push it away over and over again and ascribe what miraculous things Jesus is doing to the work of Satan. You see, the Pharisees' problem isn't an intellectual one, though they try to pretend it is. Instead of trying to argue with or disprove Jesus' power, they just outright reject it. And in doing so, they reject him too. Outright rejection. What about us? It's easy to blame intellectual reasons for rejecting Jesus, isn't it? But if you're not a Christian, is that really why? Have you actually considered the claims of Jesus his miracles, the empty tomb, hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw these things. Consider that a bunch of cowards end up dying for their beliefs in Jesus, that these same cowards found a church that spread from Judea to everywhere, a church that continues to thrive even in places where Christians are murdered. Sure, there may be other explanations for Jesus and his church, like the Pharisees. Ah, he's just using the power of the devil. I know that these things are hard to believe. I'm not saying they're not. But I think that some of us would do anything to explain them away. And maybe your reasons for not being a Christian are intellectual. I'm sure for some of you that's true. But for others, you've already made up your minds. You don't believe, and and not necessarily because it's unbelievable or because it takes faith, faith. Because even if it were believable, you'd still want nothing to do with it. Let me ask it this way. Would anything, would anything convince you to follow Jesus? And if the answer to that question is no, then that's what Jesus is talking about because your mind is already made up and you don't want Jesus and his forgiveness anyway, no matter what. And for those of us who are Christians, before we start wagging our fingers, don't forget all the ways we do the very same thing. We may claim to believe, but there's still a lot of outright rejection in our lives. If you're a Christian, Jesus is your king. And as your king, he lays a rightful claim to all that you are and everything that you have. How's that going? What are you holding back from Jesus? What are you keeping from him? Listen, partial acceptance is still rejection. Partial acceptance is still rejection. It's all or nothing. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. Which leads us to the second way we make Jesus the devil. We see this in the passage as well. Passive indifference. Passive indifference. Verse 30 reads, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me. On the face of it, that seems like a rather shocking statement. 
But if you step back for a moment, it strikes me that this is really the American way when it comes to Jesus, to religion. Oh, I'm not rejecting him. I, I just don't care enough to decide right now. All religions are the same, aren't they? I've got time. Ask me later. But the thing is, as Jesus makes clear in this verse, it doesn't work that way when it comes to him. Outright rejection and passive indifference are essentially the same thing. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 30. You're either with me or against me. There's no room for passive indifference. You may think that's what you're doing, but what you're really doing is rejecting me outright. Author and scholar D.A. Carson says this, the general thrust of verse 30 is straightforward and plain. In our relationship to Jesus, there can be no neutrality. Failure to follow Jesus wholeheartedly is as dangerous as outright opposition. And here's where we should give the Pharisees at least a little bit of credit, I think. Because I believe that they're very, very wrong about Jesus, but what we can see from them is that they're neither passive nor indifferent, right? They know that Jesus isn't just a good teacher, a prophet, or an itinerant healer. Because good teachers don't make the claims Jesus did. Good teachers don't stand there and claim to know what the unforgivable sin is. What would happen this morning if I claimed to have a sort of hold on what the unforgivable sin was? Good teachers don't do that. So the Pharisees know Jesus has either got to be dead, the devil or truly the Son of God. But in a world like ours, it's so much easier to slide without even realizing it toward passive indifference, isn't it? It seems like we've got time. It seems like nothing is forcing a decision. And so we fall back into passivity. We fall back into indifference. And listen, you can be passive about religion. Sure, any religion for that matter. But you cannot be passive about Jesus because he's just too extreme. If you actually consider what he says and who he is, his assessment in verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. It really is that extreme. So for you, which is it? Are you with Jesus or against him? And I hate to say this this morning because I know that some of you are really wrestling with Jesus. You're really considering him and his claims. But Jesus makes clear indecision is a decision. Indecision is a decision. You are either with him or against him. And while you might prefer to remain passive, what we see in these verses is that passive indifference to Jesus is an illusion. It does not exist. Passive indifference is outright rejection. And again, us Christians are not off the hook here. We're not. Think of all the ways in our lives that we're passively indifferent towards Jesus. You know, Bill and I have been using this metaphor for the last few weeks. It's been rattling around my brain, but it, it fits time and time again. And it's that Jesus refuses to be an app in your life. He cannot just be conveniently downloaded so that you can use him when you need him, and then you can stick him in a folder that you don't have to see when you don't need him. 
You know, the little, the little message pops up that you're out of storage space, so you go and you delete the Jesus app because you need to free up more room to do other things or fill it with this, that, or the other. That's not how Jesus works. He's not an app. He's an entirely new operating system. You download him as an operating system, and he changes everything about how you live. Jesus won't just be an app in your life. He is all or nothing. He wants all of you all the time. So there's no room in our lives as Christians for passive indifference, but I'll be the first one this morning to raise my hand and say there's a number of ways in which I relate this way to Jesus, where I'm passively indifferent to him. We can't do that. He doesn't leave room for it. So where in your life are you being passively indifferent toward Jesus? Verses 38 through 42 of our passage reveal the third way we can make Jesus the devil. Self-centered manipulation. Self-centered manipulation. Look back with, there, with me. Verse 38 reads this. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. We wish to see a sign from you. That's curious, isn't it? It's curious that they asked Jesus for a sign. What, what was the healing of the demon-oppressed man? Didn't they just get done not denying that miracle, but instead ascribing it to the devil? Some scholars think that for the Pharisees, there was a distinction between miracles and signs. A miracle was something done on earth by someone who was acting as an intermediary, whereas a sign came directly and immediately from heaven. So, so it goes like this. Okay, Jesus, we've seen that you can do some miracles. We're pretty sure that you're just acting as Satan's middleman. So how about a sign? How about a sign? Give us something directly from heaven right now. Prove to us that you're the Son of God. Feels self-centered, doesn't it? Feels manipulative, doesn't it? And Jesus refused to play along. He doesn't, he doesn't enter into their game. He actually uses the moment to point out their failings, not just as individuals, but he takes what they're doing and he assigns it to a whole generation. Verses 39 and 40, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, Jesus, that's helpful. No, okay. Jesus connects himself to the Old Testament story of Jonah, and he telegraphs his own future. He says, I'm heading to the cross. That is the sign of all signs. And Jesus says, even after three days of being dead and coming back to life, even then, you will not believe me. What is more of a sign than that? But even then, you'll still reject me. You'll still try to manipulate me. You'll still make me out to be the devil. Which is why he calls this generation evil and adulterous. In verse 41, Jesus reminds them and us that even the Ninevites, the people that Jonah preached to, they believed and they repented when they heard his message. They turned from their sins and back toward God. And they were a horribly wicked people. And in verse 42, Jesus references the queen of the south, which refers to the queen of Sheba. This is another Old Testament story found in 1 Kings 10. And the queen of Sheba comes from this very far off land to sit at the feet of the wisest king in the Old Testament, Solomon, and hear from his teaching. 
The Ninevites responded when they heard Jonah preach. The Queen of Sheba responded when she heard Solomon preach. And Jesus sums it up so well in verse 42. He says, something far greater than Solomon is here. He's pointing to himself and he's saying, I'm greater than Jonah and Solomon. And I'm preaching to you right now. I am telling you the way the world is. And what you have to deal with is this question. How are you going to respond to me? I'm greater than Jonah and Solomon. I'm here right now. And instead of repenting and believing like the Ninevites did, like the queen of the south did, you're rejecting me and you're saying that I'm from Satan. The Pharisees, by by saying that they would, or asking Jesus for a sign, they're, they're doing this. They're saying, Jesus, we'll follow you if... dot, dot, dot. And again, don't we do the same thing? Jesus, I'll follow you if you fix my family, my health, if I get a better job, my finances. I'll follow you if you prove yourself to me, if you give me a sign, or if you cure all my doubts. Self-centered manipulation is the person who, whether realizing it or not, only intends to follow Jesus as long as life is okay. The moment you get sick or temptation comes or you lose a job, you're done. Jesus is only as good as his willingness and ability to make your life perfect and fix your problems. And what we see in the passage is that this too is rejection. This too is just yet another way to make Jesus the devil. Self-centered manipulation is still rejection of Jesus. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. And so before we move on, ask yourself, and I, and I know this feels extreme, how am I most likely to make a devil out of Jesus? Whether you're a Christian or not, consider that question. Outright rejection, passive indifference, or selfish manipulation. It's definitely time for some good news, isn't it? I feel it. Finally, we'll turn the corner. How to receive Jesus as your brother. How to receive Jesus as your brother. And maybe, maybe, I mean, I'm sure this sounds better than the last 20 minutes of Jesus being the devil, but maybe this isn't exactly at the front end good news to you. I said that at the top, right? This may sound weird. This may seem unbelievable. It may seem disrespectful. Jesus as my brother. And listen, the reason that it feels unbelievable or disrespectful to you is because it would be disrespectful to call Jesus your brother if he didn't call us his brothers first. And that's the beautiful and wonderful and unbelievable crazy thing that happens at the end of our passage, verses 46 through 50. Let's read those one more time. And while Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his earthly mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, being brothers with Jesus does not mean that we're his equals. This isn't buddy Christ that we're talking about here. Maybe some of you have seen this picture. 
This is not what we're going for here, right? Uh, Jesus is still God, and we are very much not still God. Amen, right? But listen to what the author of the book of Hebrews says about this. This is a wonderfully beautiful phrase, right? Chapter 2, verse 11, the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. Church, do not miss this this morning. Because this, this is the highest privilege of the gospel. That there is a way for Jesus to call us his brothers and not be ashamed of us. Because as we just spent so many minutes covering, how many ways are there for us to reject Jesus? How many ways are there for us to make Jesus out to be the devil? And that puts us in this very, very dangerous and dark place. This place where we have declared Jesus to be the devil and we have made ourselves enemies of God. Declaring Jesus to be the devil means that you have made yourself to be an enemy of God, an enemy of God, and all of us are in that spot. But instead of destruction, instead of destruction, and that's what enemies deserve, isn't it? Destruction. But instead of destruction, what are we offered in the gospel? Adoption. Not destruction, but adoption. For those who come to Jesus, we move from being enemies of God to being sons and daughters. We move from the battlefield to the living room. It doesn't get better than this church because sons and daughters aren't just forgiven, they're loved. They're not just tolerated, they're welcomed. They're not just given a pass, they are written into the will. Heirs of the unshakable kingdom. They're not just subjects, but they're royalty. Adoption because of the gospel means that God The God of the universe is your dad. He's your father. And Jesus is your brother. But how? How is that wonderful thing possible? How do we receive Jesus as our brother? Three quick diagnostic questions for you. They're centered around Jesus and they're pulled directly from this passage. The first question is this. Are you Jesus' disciple? Are you Jesus' disciple? Because notice that in verse 49, Jesus stretches out his hand to his disciples and calls them his brothers, not to the Pharisees, not to the crowds, not to his earthly family. He stretches out his hand and he says, his disciples are his brothers. He says, those who are following me are my brothers. So are you his disciple? Are you following Jesus? If you want to receive Jesus as your brother, then you have to follow him as your king. You have to come to him in faith as you are, imperfect, messy, saying, I don't have it all figured out. I know two things. I know I am a great sinner, and I know you are a great savior. Let's go. You lead the way. Are you Jesus' disciple? Second, is your life characterized by doing Jesus' will? Is your life characterized by doing Jesus' will? Truly, trusting in Jesus means following Jesus. And truly following in Jesus means that our lives begin to look like his life. Our decisions begin to be what Jesus' decisions were. If you're part of this family with God as our father and Jesus as our brother, then you're going over time to begin to resemble the family, right? Isn't that how family resemblance works? 
You know, many of you have, have commented to me how much my son Bevan looks like me. Uh, I agree, and, and I haven't even showed you side-by-side baby pics. Are you ready for this this morning? Side-by-side baby pics. Let's go. Come on. Look at that. That's crazy. That is two different babies. The one on the top is me, and the one on the bottom is my son Bevan. That's some serious family resemblance there. I couldn't deny him if I want to. Not, not that I do most days, right? Of course my son looks like me. He's part of the family. So how about you and God? Are you starting to resemble his family? Again, I couldn't deny Bevan. Could somebody deny that you're part of God's family because you look nothing like him or his followers? So the question becomes this. If you are in the family, what does family resemblance look like? What does it look like in the family of God? And Jesus gives us the answer plainly in verse 50, doing the will of the Father. Being in God's family means growing in obedience and doing the Father's will. And thankfully, the Bible tells us plainly all over the place what the will of the Father is. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to wonder. It's God's will that you give thanks in all circumstances, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It's God's will that you become holy and avoid sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It's God's will that you do good in the midst of opposition, 1 Peter 2.15. It's God's will that you act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God, Micah 6.8, and on and on and on. So ask yourself, am I starting to look like family? Is my life characterized by doing Jesus' will? And it's not that we obey the Father and then he adopts us. No, not at all. But when you join his family through faith, you take on the family traits and customs. You grow in obedience and you do the Father's will. So is your life characterized by doing Jesus' will? Final question. Have you made Jesus' family your family? Have you made Jesus' family your family? It's impossible to miss that in these verses, Jesus is doing a bit of family redefinition. And this topic has come up a few times in the last couple months. This is clearly something that Jesus cares about. He cares that nothing, even our immediate earthly families, come between our first allegiance to him. And it doesn't mean that we devalue or desert our earthly families, only that our new family should reign supreme, should be most important. And I realize that that still sounds harsh and difficult, But there's actually this beautiful paradox that takes place when we put God and his family first in our lives. Uh, Author C.S. Lewis, just a reminder that I'm contractually obligated to mention C.S. Lewis once a sermon. Bill would fire me if I didn't. Just kidding. I think. (laughs) But C.S. Lewis says the paradox this way. He describes it and says, When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. That's why we use C.S. Lewis all the time. The man was brilliant. When I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. So earthly families matter, of course. It's right to love them and value them. But Jesus makes it clear in this passage, God and his family come first. And there's no family like God's family. Because it's your family whether you're married or single. It's your family whether you have kids or not. It's a family even if your earthly family history is really messed up. 
You know, here at Christ Community, we believe so deeply that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. The local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. And one of the reasons why we are so sold out to that belief is because everyone, everyone needs a family like God's family. Everyone needs a place where they can belong no matter what. Isn't that true? Where no matter their ethnicity, no matter their past, their history, their socioeconomic status, no matter what, they can come here and belong to a caring family. Which is exactly why our mission statement at Christ Community begins the way it does. At Christ Community, we desire to be a caring family. That comes first. A caring family of multiplying disciples influencing our community and world for Jesus. That is not just something that we wrote down and stuffed in a drawer. That sits behind us and pushes us forward and decides what we do and how we do it because we so desperately, desperately want to be a caring family with you. If you belong to Jesus, you're with us. Sorry. (laughs) You get us, warts and all. But we're going to commit to you. We're going to commit to you. And we hope that you'll commit to us. We hope that you'll make Jesus' family your family. As we do that, as we are God's family together, we get Jesus as our brother. And standing up here talking about brothers for the last few minutes reminds me of one of my favorite parables the so-called, pro, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And, and I say so-called because it's really not just a, a story about one son. It's a story about two sons. It's a story about brothers. The, the younger brother who disgracefully abandons the father asks for his inheritance and squanders it all on self-centered living. And the older brother who is smug, self-righteous, and really kind of horrible, he's a picture of the Pharisees. And unfortunately, he's a picture of many Christians, isn't he? And the whole time you're reading this story or you're hearing it, you can't help but think that there's maybe a character missing. A character missing from this story. A true older brother. A true older brother who would have been willing to pay any cost to bring his wayward younger sibling back. You read it and you're like, where's that guy? Tim Keller, pastor and author, he writes this of the missing character. He points this out brilliantly. He says, By putting in a flawed elder brother, Jesus is inviting us, the learners or the listeners and the readers, to imagine and yearn for a true older brother. By putting in a flawed elder brother, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and yearn for a true one. And church, that's the best news of the morning, isn't it? Because what we deserve, what we deserve as our older brother is the smug Pharisee older brother in the story. That's who I deserve. I know it's to be true. But that's not who I get. That's not who you get. Your older brother is Jesus. That's who we get. The true and better older brother who comes after us at great cost. The true and older brother who chases us down and finds us in the pigsty. The true and older brother who finds us in the brothel or in our obsession with greed or in our pornography addiction. And even though in those places, time and time again, we make Jesus out to be the devil, this older brother pleads with us for come, to come home. This older brother pays the cost for us to come home on the cross, with his life. Friends, Jesus is the true older brother that we need. 
He came after us. He died for our forgiveness and he rose for our eternal life. Jesus is either the devil or your brother. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so deeply grateful that there are two options and not just one. We know that we make out Jesus to be the devil time and time again. So thank you for making there to be a better way. Thank you that you're our father and Jesus is our brother. We know that that's only possible because of his life, death, and resurrection. And we trust in that gospel message. I pray, Father, that these difficult words from Matthew 12 would sink deep into our hearts and influence and impact the way we live our lives on a daily basis. Amen.